1: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
2: Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, General Surgery Resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as Behind the Knife Education Fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two year block of professional development time away from full time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all of the Behind the Knife resources like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Hello, and
3: welcome back to another journal review in thoracic surgery with your Swedish Medical Center thoracic surgery team. I'm Kelly Dawes, and today I'm joined by my beloved co-host, Dr. Megan Lenihan, and our esteemed attendings, Dr. Brian Louie and Dr. Peter White. We are really excited to share with you this journal club today covering the Checkmate 577 trial, which changed the game in the adjuvant management of esophageal and GE junction cancer we hope to share some stellar pearls regarding the treatment of esophageal cancer, comprehensively review this landmark trial, discuss the impact it's had and where we go from here as we continue to make advances in the treatment of this challenging and aggressive
2: cancer.
4: I think that's what makes research in this field so essential. It's pretty awful to tell a patient that even after they've had chemotherapy plus radiation therapy plus surgery for trimodality therapy, That there's still up to 70 75% chance likelihood that they don't have complete response, they have residual disease, and that their recurrence rate is so high.
0: Peter, that's so true, and the patients were so excited to hear about this trial. Uh, And you know, the complete pathologic response rates still are not very good. And in the cross trial, only 49% of those that had squamous cancer got a pathologic response and for adenocarcinoma, even lower at 23%. So there's a lot of folks with residual, residual disease.
1: Luckily, a lot of exciting research out there right now to try and change that. So let's dive into Checkmate 577. This study evaluated the use of nivolumab, a PD-1 or program death-1 inhibitor in esophageal cancer. Specifically, as an adjuvant therapy in stage two and three esophageal and GE junction cancer, in patients who received adjuvant chemoradiation, had an R0 resection, and did not have a complete pathologic response. This was a global, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3 trial that underwent enrollment and data collection from 2016 to 2020 with initial results published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of 2021.
4: Great. Uh, So in other words, these are resectable Locally advanced cancers, they undergo standard trimodality therapy with chemotherapy plus radiation concurrently for induction, followed by surgery for resection. And then within the resection bed, there's residual disease. This can either be at the primary tumor sites of the esophagus or within the lymph nodes after surgery. So let's briefly review the TNM staging of esophageal cancer. So Kelly, walk us through that.
3: Okay. So T1A invades the lamina propria T1B invades the submucosa, T2 is going to extend into the muscularis propria, when you get to T3, you're invading the adventitia, and then your T4 tumors are those that are going into surrounding structures. Um, Stage 2 cancers are going to be T2 or T3 with no nodes, or a T1 or T2 tumor that has one or two positive nodes. And then when you get to stage 3, these are going to be T3 and T4 tumors that have positive nodes but no distant metastasis.
4: Right. It's important to note that N1 versus N2 versus N3 disease is based on the number of involved lymph nodes. So one to two lymph nodes for N1 disease, three to six for N2 disease, seven or more lymph nodes for N3 disease. There are some also, uh, There's also some differences between clinical and pathologic staging, whether they had induction therapy, whether or not they're adenocarcinoma or squamous cell, but we won't go into those details. For those interested in some light reading, the NCCN guidelines are a really great place to start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's light reading, but okay. In the Checkmate 577 trial, we are specifically looking at T2 or greater cancers, which are those, as Kelly said, that invade the tumor invades the muscularis propria and or often have involved lymph nodes but with no distant metastases. This is the subgroup of patients that, based on NCCN guidelines, are recommended to undergo trimodality therapy with neoadjuvant chemoradiation with platinum-based therapy. Plus a taxane or fluorouracil followed by surgical resection.
4: Great. So, Megan, as a refresher, what defines a GE junction tumor, uh, which would be a treating according to these guidelines?
1: Junctional tumors are centered no more than two centimeters onto the proximal stomach, whereas tumors beyond two centimeters below the GE junction are treated as gastric cancer.
4: And just to make sure, that's the epicenter of the tumor, not necessarily the uh, distal extension. Great. So now
0: that we've established all these patients were stage 2 or stage 3, all underwent neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, and they all underwent esophagectomy, what are some of the pertinent characteristics of this study population?
3: So the group that they were looking at histologically, uh, 70% of their patients had adenocarcinoma and 30%
1: had squamous cell. For location, approximately 60% were esophageal tumors and 40% were GE junction cancers. They had about 35%
3: that were stage 2 and 65% that were stage 3.
0: That's great. We all know all these patients did not have complete pathologic response, but what were the distributions we are looking at when we're talking about the difference between tumor and the residual, or residual tumor in the specimen of the esophagus or nodal disease?
3: So about 40% were node negative on their final path and 60%
1: were N1 or greater. And for residual tumor size, 5% were T0, 40% were T1 or T2, and 55% were T3 or T4. Other basic characteristics to note are that the
3: average age was 60, 80% were male, 20% were female, 80% were white, and 15% were Asian.
4: All right, that's a great overview. It uh, gives us some important information about the background of the study. Uh, it's also important to note that all the proportions that we just mentioned were equivalent in both arms
1: hang on, what about receptor status? We're talking about a monoclonal antibody. In breast cancer, you only give Herceptin to patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. Does this need to be targeted specifically at patients with PD-L1 expression?
0: That's an excellent question, Megan, and highlights the importance of understanding the PD-1 pathway. I almost always need a picture to remind myself of the steps, but we'll try and break it down for everyone out there. PD-1 is a receptor expressed on T-cells. It binds to its ligand, PDL one on other cells in the body as part of self-tolerance. When they bind together, it initiates an inhibitory cascade which blocks T-cell activation, proliferation, and cytotoxin secretion. Its normal function is to prevent T-cells from attacking and destroying normal healthy cells in the body, but as you can imagine, upregulating this inhibitory cascade and decreasing the activity of the immune system is also beneficial to cancer cells.
4: Exactly. Uh, cancer essentially hijacks the pathway, overexpresses pdl one which causes the tumor microenvironment to have low levels of T-cell activation. This enables the cancer to evade detection by the host immune system and enhances the rapid unchecked proliferation of tumor cells. And this is where immunotherapy comes into play if we have a great drug which blocks this tumor upregulation, well, then the patient's own immune system can fight back. It recognizes the tumor cells as foreign, and it can initiate programmed cell death.
3: Thanks for explaining that a little bit more. I know the cancer genetics is, can be really complicated sometimes. Um, we'll put some pictures in our show notes, too, to help listeners out there to try to wrap their heads around the complexities of this pathway. My basic takeaway is that PD1 and PDL1 binding decreases immune response, and then when we use drugs to block their interaction, we cause an increased immune response.
4: Yeah, that's right. So currently, checkpoint inhibitors can act against the receptor PD1 or the ligand PDL1, as well as CTLA4, which is a different type of checkpoint protein. Nivolumab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to PD1 receptor. By blocking PD-1, we put a halt on this inhibitory pathway, which enhances the immune response to the tumor cells. So as a result, T-cells are activated, they proliferate, they secrete cytotoxins, and then induce apoptosis and programmed cell death within the tumor cells.
3: So you'd think that cancer cells would need high expression of pdl one to see a large treatment effect with nivolumab, wouldn't you?
0: Well, that's the thought, but... You don't need to specifically target tumors with a high PD-L1 expression for nivolumab to be effective, because the drug target the drug's target isn't on the cancer cells; it's on the T cell. Nivolumab is a monoclonal antibody against PD-1, and like Peter described, this receptor is present on the T cells throughout the body. In this way, you are upregulating the immune system as a whole. Any cancer cells that do exhibit PD-L1 overexpression can no longer be effective in their attempt to downregulate T cell activation because the PD-1 receptor on the T cell is now blocked.
1: Now, in the study population, they did measure pdl one expression on tumor cells, although this was not an inclusion or exclusion criteria for the study. They used a qualitative immunohistochemical assay and in other cancers, such as non-small cell lung cancer, squamous cell head and neck cancers, and urothelial carcinomas, we'll see even with just greater than one pdl one expression on this assay, that can be associated with enhanced survival in the use of nivolumab.
3: And while well, even though this assay hasn't yet been validated for esophageal and GE junction cancers, the um, authors of the study did send tissue samples from the surgical pathology of all the specimens um, for PDL 1 testing. Um, and they report that 70% of the study participants had less than 1% PDL 1 expression. Um, and 30% had greater than one PDL one expression. So based on the data that we know from the other cancers that Megan mentioned, this would indicate that only 30% um, may have had enhanced survival with nivolumab treatment.
0: There are two key points here, that immunohistochemical staining is of variable accuracy, and expression is not necessarily uniform throughout the tumors. In the real world, just because a sample from a patient does not stain very positive for PD-L1 doesn't mean they might they won't have a benefit from nivolumab. Also, this particular assay has not specifically been specifically validated for esophageal and GE junction cancers as Kelly said. The study was designed to answer the question, is nivolumab effective regardless of PD-L1 expression in the tumor? All right, great Brian. Hello listeners, Patrick off here. I wanted to tell you about a very cool study being run by our friends at Brook Army Medical Center. They are working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed robotic general surgery procedures. If you are a general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic-assisted cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, check out the show notes for more information on how you could be compensated $500 per video submitted. That's right, $500 per video submitted. All right. A bit of an addendum. I have since participated in the study. I want to support the great work that they're doing and make a few bucks while doing so. So I submitted a number of my robotic videos. It was quick, easy, and seamless. I recommend you do the same. Again, go ahead and check out the show notes for more information.
4: Now, back to our show. So let's move forward and discuss the study design. Kelly?
3: Right. So patients were randomly assigned to receive nivolumab or a matching placebo and a two-to-one ratio. Um, Treatment started no sooner than one month after surgery and no later than four months after surgery. They had 532 patients who received nivolumab and 260 patients who received the placebo. For those receiving nivolumab, treatment started with 240 milligrams every two weeks for 16 weeks, followed by 480 milligrams every four weeks for a maximum duration of a year.
0: Perfect. And what was the primary endpoint evaluated in the study?
1: They looked primarily at disease-free survival, with recurrence being evaluated by serial CT or MRI imaging. Imaging was obtained every three months in the first two years, and then according to local standard, between three to five years, with minimum requirement of imaging every six to 12 months. If imaging findings were unclear at all, a biopsy was obtained to confirm if there was a recurrence or not.
0: So what did they find, Megan?
1: They found that median disease-free survival was significantly longer in patients receiving nivolumab. It was 22.4 months in the nivolumab group compared to 11 months in patients receiving placebo. There was a hazard ratio of 0.69 with a p-value less than 0.001. Yeah,
4: if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, it's truly impressive. So the separation begins right at around 7 months, continues all the way through, and it essentially doubles the median disease-free survival to over 22 months. You know, Peter...
0: The curve is also maintained in the subgroup analysis as well. When they analyzed the findings based on histologic subtype, nivolumab showed longer disease-free survival for both squamous carcinoma and adenocarcinoma, with the difference in squamous carcinoma being 27.7 versus 11 months and for adenocarcinoma 19.4 versus 11 months. While both clearly benefit, the results with squamous cell carcinoma were even more impressive.
4: Well, we know that residual disease in lymph nodes is overall a pretty poor prognostic factor, but this really didn't seem to impact the degree of benefit achieved with nivolumab. Among patients with positive lymph nodes after induction, chemoradiotherapy, followed by surgery, those receiving nivolumab had a median disease survival of 14.8 months compared to 7.6 months in the placebo group. Uh, again, roughly doubling the mean disease-free survival time even in those with positive lymph node disease.
3: Wow. One of the interesting things to me is that even when disease-free survival was stratified for the PDL1 expression, the Nivolumab group was superior to placebo in both those with strong and those with low PDL1 expression on their immunohistochemical assay. Why do you think that is?
0: I don't think anybody truly knows the answer to that question. I think this goes back to what we were discussing earlier regarding the mechanism action of nivolumab and how it is blocking the PD-1 receptor on T cells so that the level of expression of PDL one on the tumor is a non-factor, as well as the fact that immunohistocopical staining is of variable accuracy and this assay has not been validated in esophageal or GE junction cancers.
4: Thanks, Brian. Uh, so what about the secondary endpoints? So what else do they look at in the study?
3: Well, in addition to disease-free survival, they investigated distant metastasis-free survival. Um, They found that nivolumab remained superior to placebo. Median distant metastasis-free survival was 28.3 months in the nivolumab group and 17.6 months in the placebo group.
1: And of course, they wanted to make sure that this therapy was tolerated. So one of the other secondary endpoints was frequency of adverse events among the two groups. Overall, frequency of adverse events was pretty similar. Grade 3 or 4 adverse events occurring in 34% of the nivolumab group and 32% of the placebo group, and more serious adverse events of any grade was around 30% in each group.
3: Yeah, and the most common adverse events that could be attributed to the trial regimen were things like fatigue, diarrhea, puritis, and rash, um, and these were more frequently noted in the nivolumab group than the placebo group.
4: Yeah, I think the bottom line here is that there isn't anything in the adverse event analysis that would really negate the disease-free survival benefit. Uh, The most serious immunologic consequence they mentioned from nivolumab group was pneumonitis, and this occurred in less than 1% of all the treated patients. Agreed, Peter. I think the
0: takeaway here is nivolumab provides a disease-free survival benefit without increased risk or incidence of adverse events. But remember, there are some clear contraindications to immune therapy, such as those with pre-existing autoimmune diseases. While treatment is generally well-tolerated, not everyone is a candidate.
3: So hopefully that's a pretty comprehensive review of the Checkmate 577 trial. To summarize, this was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial that investigated the impact of adjuvant treatment with nivolumab on disease-free survival in patients with stage 2 or stage 3 esophageal and GE junction cancer who had undergone neoadjuvant chemoradiation and surgery and then had pathological residual disease. They concluded that median disease-free survival was longer for patients who received nivolumab, and the separation of that Kaplan-Meier curve was maintained, suggesting a durable effect of this treatment. The disease-free survival benefit was maintained despite differences in histologic subtype, nodal status, or pdl one expression. This survival benefit was achieved without any increased incidence in adverse events or a decreased quality of life.
1: Dr. Louie, what are your thoughts? What are your big takeaways? What did you learn?
0: Well, Megan, I, you, you know, I think this trial is the first trial in a long, long time, in a long line of esophageal cancer trials that actually showed significant improvement with the addition of adjuvant therapy, particularly nivolumab. And so this has changed the game for, my, for our patients for sure, and that's why it's exciting.
4: Some of the things that always get discussed when we talk about cancer trials is disease-free progression versus overall survival. Um, As the world in cancer treatment is moving so fast, we can't enroll patients for five years and then do five-year overall survival. By the time whatever treatment regimen was studied, it's already outdated. So I think we have to acknowledge that disease-free survival, uh, progression-free survival is really now the mainstay of how these studies are gonna be initially evaluated Mm -hmm. with longer-term overall survival to eventually come, but it's already FDA-approved based on this information. So I think the paradigm has started to shift and we're seeing that in all of these studies. The other thing that we have to understand is that there's a bit of a catch-22 here. The way the study was designed, we have induction chemo radiotherapy followed by surgery, and only in people with residual disease are they approved. Uh, And so that adds a level of complexity for insurance for patients who don't meet this specific group of individuals? What if they never get radiation? What if rather than they get induction carboplatin plus a taxol, they get fulfox without radiation, which for some may provide a better response for adenocarcinoma? Well, they are ineligible for nivolumab based on this study. Well, what about the people that go straight to surgery? What if they're a deep T1B after resection? And then what if they have N1 disease in their pathologic resection? Well, Had they had induction therapy, they would have been a candidate, but now they're not. And so it does limit some of what can be done specifically for patient-directed therapy, but it's definitely a start, and hopefully the indications will just be expanded.
1: Any other thoughts, things you want to get out there?
4: Yeah, well, when we talk about immunotherapy, there's another um, big thing that's discussed, and it's about priming the immune system with rather than adjuvant therapy after the primary tumor and lymph nodes have already been removed but instead giving it up front in the neoadjuvant setting Hmm. the thought is that you have all of these tumor cells you can prime the immune system to get an even more robust response because now they have something to actually attack rather than trying to pick out all of these little tiny floating cells that may or may not be there in the adjuvant setting
1: that makes a lot of sense yeah
4: And so we know that there's some of those trials that are in the works. Some of our friends at Memorial Sloan Kettering are working on that Mm -hmm. right now. And I think that's going to be the next step for immunotherapy, just like it has been for lung cancer, for other cancers, is moving immunotherapy into the neoadjuvant setting.
0: Yeah, you know, Peter, I think this, like you said, this area is moving super fast. and, And it's really cool to finally see some movement on the lung cancer and the esophageal cancer side, which have been deadly cancers for a long time, and the patients have some hope here, and as physicians, we have some hope here. And, you know, even the positivity of this trial was so strong that insurance began approving it as soon as the publication results were done. It wasn't a long process to wait. Insurance had to move because the trial results were so strong, they couldn't deny it.
1: Yeah. As we look towards future areas of research, the investigators at the Checkmate 577 trial have a planned analysis of overall survival on the horizon with an estimated completion date in 2025. Additionally, researchers are investigating the impact of checkpoint inhibitors in patients who are undergoing definitive chemo radiation treatment for esophageal cancer that's not amenable to surgical resection. The Keynote 975 trial is underway investigating the use of pembrolizumab, another PD-1 inhibitor in this patient population. And there are trials investigating checkpoint inhibitors as neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment for gastric and G-junction cancer, as Dr. White was mentioning. There's a lot of exciting research which will emerge over the next few years and continue to change the game in treatment of these cancers, and hopefully we will be here to tell you about it next time. So thank you as always for tuning in to another Swedish Thoracic Surgery Journal review. Dominate the day.